0: Superstorm Sandy destroyed thousands of homes in her path and flooded countless others. People all along the Upper East Coast, including right here in New York City, are now faced with a daunting task of rebuilding their homes and lives. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. The nonprofit organization Rebuilding Together New York City rehabilitates the homes of low-income New Yorkers, in particular the elderly, disabled, families with children, and veterans. The group's now feverishly working to assess the needs of homeowners impacted by Superstorm Sandy. Chelsea Muller is their executive director. Chelsea, thanks for coming in.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: No question. Question. There is a great need right now in New York City. A lot of people need to rebuild in the aftermath of Superstorm Sandy. Now, right. what is your role in all of that?
1: Well, right now, um, we really are going to be very, very active in the long-term recovery. We, we really see our role um, playing out over the years to come. So right now, um, we're working diligently to uh, make sure we're in communication with all those who are doing similar work and who are in contact with those that need uh, rebuilding services and assistance with their homes. Um, and we're trying to do assessments and, and really understand what need is, out there uh, who the players are and how we can best fill the gaps and services um, that maybe the city can't meet uh, federal government can't meet uh, so right now we're just trying to understand the need as much as possible
0: how long has rebuilding together been around to now
1: we have um, had kind of different um, different representation in New York City at, at one point um, we've been we've been serving the area for for Twenty years now, um, but we have had affiliates in individual boroughs. Uh, but for the last six years, we've been consolidated as one affiliate. Um, our offices are physically located in Manhattan, but we serve all five boroughs.
0: Fair to say, this is the most daunting task that you've been faced with in all of these years.
1: Yes, yes, this is definitely um, a huge challenge. Uh, it, you know, it's a very, very large service area. Um, the logistical. Uh, challenges of serving our service area are huge, um, but this is this is an opportunity to really serve those that that need to be served and to help as much as possible.
0: Does an organization like yours here in New York City learn lessons from organizations similar to yours in a place like New Orleans?
1: Yeah, yeah, that is. Um, That's a very timely question. Um, Just last week, we were uh, face-to-face with our affiliate leaders from New Orleans, uh, Tennessee, um, affiliates affected by tornadoes. So um, our affiliate network has seen a plethora of natural disasters. Um, And while the communities are very different, there are tremendous lessons learned, absolutely. Um, And we're right now working very closely with our our neighbors, our our affiliates that are um, in Long Island, in uh, Jersey City, in Bergen County, um, and really understanding uh, what the needs are there, um, how maybe we can kind of shuffle resources to make sure that the, you know, rebuilding together presence is serving the area as much as we, as we can.
0: So you'll actually go in and help to do the physical work of mm-hmm. putting those walls back up, the sheetrock, the plaster, all of that?
1: Yep. Yeah, well, um, what we do is is bring communities and volunteers together to improve the homes and lives of low-income homeowners. Um, so when we take on a project, we're not providing someone with a grant to do the services. We're actually doing the work. Um, and we, we do so um, by leveraging resources as much as possible. Right now, we're very actively communicating with some of our longtime national sponsors as well as bringing in new supporters uh, to really meet these needs. Uh, Sears, for example, is, is a huge supporter of, of ours um, that provides uh, both funds and in-kind donations of materials. So that, along with uh, the skilled volunteers that are like literally beating down the door and looking for ways to help right now, um, we are absolutely going to be able to leverage our resources as much as possible and do the physical work
0: how do families in need reach you to let you know hey we can use the help
1: yeah. Um, individuals can call, um, and we can have a, a, a discussion about what their needs are, where they're located, um, and really understand how best we can serve them, uh, or if there's another organization that can serve them better. But but just picking up the phone probably is the easiest way to do it. Um, I can give you our phone number now Please if do. that would be appropriate. It's 212-362-1636.
0: And repeat it because you know it All takes right. <laughs> a moment for people to grab that pen. Sure.
1: 212 362 Uh, And we also have information on our website, which is rebuildingtogethernyc.org. And I'll say that one more time. www.rebuildingtogethernyc.org.
0: What, Chelsea, do you want to say to people whose homes were severely damaged in a storm like Sandy from your experience in rebuilding people's lives by Mm -hmm. helping to rebuild their homes?
1: Um, home is, it's a basic need, you know, your shelter and your home. Um, and especially in the regions really hardly are hard hard hit by this storm. People are in these communities for their lifetimes. They There's generations that have been in these communities. So it's a lot more than a building. Um, and we want to um, thank them for their patience as we work to, Best serve them and and best find a way to uh, rebuild as many structures as possible.
0: Chelsea, thank you so much for coming in.
1: Thank you so much for
0: having me. Chelsea Muller is the executive director of Rebuilding Together New York City. Nearly a month after Superstorm Sandy, and life is far from back to normal in the hard hit Rockaways in Queens. Cityscape producer Morlene Chin brings us to one of the devastated neighborhoods.
2: It's been weeks since the storm, and there's still no sign of power in parts of Rockaway, Queens. Here and there a streetlight or home is lit by a private generator, but otherwise it's so dark that it feels like the middle of the night at 6pm. The streets are muddy, but the paths are largely cleared of trees that were either uprooted or cut down to their stumps in the wake of the storm. There are cars sitting on front lawns pressed against homes with their windows broken. I walk down the beach streets, where large homes line the blocks, almost all left vacant. It's a long and difficult trip to get out there. The one subway line only took me as far as Howard Beach, and from there it took two shuttle buses to reach Rockaway Park. I got word from a volunteer on his way there that a church several streets down would be distributing food and supplies to victims. After about 10 blocks of walking from the bus stop, I reached the St. Francis de Sales church and school.
3: I, I don't think I, do, but <laughs> I don't to that, so.
2: There I met John Maringolo. He's an anesthesiologist and medical director for the church's recovery and rebuilding effort. He and his wife, who is a nurse, are volunteering to help.
3: It's been more grave than anyone can imagine. We have nothing. Someone just asked me where they can get a cup of coffee, and I said, we don't have any stores. Uh, Most people here, in fact, everyone who had a home was affected in some way. uh, None of them minor, all major and worse. Homes were lost completely. So uh, the, the effect here was devastating.
2: The church gym was completely filled with donated goods for victims of the storm it didn 't look like there would be a shortage anytime soon, but Patrick Kassane, who who is helping unload cars that come with these donated items, says their storage is sure to empty out fast
4: which won 't be good in a day from now because then this will be empty, and that 'll be no good so hopefully people keep bringing things. Everybody needs bleach and paper goods. this seems to be any cleaning supplies bleach cleaning supplies, and paper goods seems to be the big need. so i 'm just here helping out because uh, they obviously all lost their food there 's no stores open for ten miles so There's, I think, a 1,000 people every every day, you know, getting supplies and getting food. So I'm happy just to help out.
2: Not too far from the church in a part of Rockaway called Breezy Point, 100 homes burned to the ground the night Sandy bore down on the city. Photos of the damage made national headlines and have driven people from miles away to come help. There are people volunteering who drove from Binghamton, New York, and New Hampshire, like Suzanne Stone. We
1: drove here because I have friends that lived in Rockaway and lost their home. And I was reading the stories and looking at pictures and I just felt like I had to do something. And we put out a call to our town and surrounds and asked people to donate. And before a couple of days, we went from two cargo vans to a 16-foot truck. And um, we were turning people away at the end because we couldn't
4: fit any more stuff.
2: But the majority of the people coming to help are from the neighborhood. Jared Aston lives on Beach 102nd Street. His house was flooded from the storm, so now he's staying in Brooklyn. He still comes to the church every day to deliver hot food. He's also provided shelter for a man wandering the streets without a place to go.
5: I picked up a guy in this neighborhood who was living in one of the mental, mentally ill facilities uh, during during the Nor'easter. And he was wandering around in this part of town. He had walked up maybe 50 blocks here. And he had been in the elements for at least two and a half, three hours, and was wet and everything, and he had nowhere to go. So I took him with me, and he crashed with me in Brooklyn for the night. And then I sort of had to find him a place to be. And I'm kind of becoming like his new guardian person.
2: (laughs) Electricity isn't expected to return to the neighborhood for weeks, and it's frustrating residents like Doreen Arellano, who lives on Beach 117th Street, she's heard that they may not get power or heat until Christmas. Which is unfathomable. We have elderly people that live on the fifth floor who cannot climb these stairs. We have people with children. They're freezing. I'm freezing. It's cold. We need food. What do we do? We need help. It will take a long time for Rockaway residents to rebuild their homes and lives. But for now, those looking for food, shelter, or somewhere they can commiserate are getting help and refuge from their neighbors. For Cityscape, I'm Morleen Chen.
0: If anyone could relate to the struggle New Yorkers are facing in the aftermath of Sandy, it's survivors of Hurricane Katrina along the Gulf Coast. Connie Udo is the director of St. Paul's Homecoming Center in New Orleans. Connie, thanks for joining us.
5: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: So tell me about St. Paul's Homecoming Center.
5: St. Paul's Homecoming Center is a basically a Hurricane Katrina recovery center, you know, born in the aftermath, about a year after the storm, and we were um, a kind of a command central hub of recovery in the Lakeview neighborhood of New Orleans. We, um, I was living in New Orleans, you know, from one of the flooded neighborhoods in Lakeview. I started out opening up my house to my neighbors, to come back. We were the first of eight families to have electricity out of 9,000 homes. So, you know, from there we evolved evolved into a real, like I said, command central hub of recovery, which is something that is very, very needed in, you know, a devastation such as Katrina, now Sandy, and it, it has served our neighborhood so well. It really helped galvanize a recovery, and um, we saw great momentum just because people had a place and a base to come to for help and resources and information and all of that. So we um, have been operating. We moved to another neighborhood in 2010, and we are still operating today as a recovery center. Now we've transitioned into Hurricane Isaac Recovery, helping many people who have flooded outside of Orleans Parish in Hurricane Isaac, and now we're even reaching beyond our borders to help our East Coast neighbors um, in Hurricane Sandy.
0: What goes through your mind, Connie, when you see the images on television as to what happened here on the East Coast?
5: I'll tell you, one of the first things that goes through my mind is like, oh, I wish I was there. I wish I had a megaphone to walk down the streets just giving people good, practical advice. You know, I call it lessons learned from New Orleans. And something that I saw right two or three days after, you know, someone was walking down the street with a reporter and saying, oh, all of my kids' toys, we've had to throw away everything. And I saw everything on the curbside and a beautiful table and hardwood chairs and Iron, you know, baker's racks, and I and I literally yelled at the TV. No, no, you don't need to do that, <laughs> you know. And that's one of the things I'm seeing. And and from that, I started thinking of that, you know, there's kind of myths to a flood and there's truths to a flood. So I put together a list of tips, and I've been sending them out as much as I can to contacts that I have in the east coast. But you know, people really. They need to know that, even though it was in raw storage, and the fact that the water didn't fit like in New Orleans, it sat in my house for three to four weeks it took to drain, and we threw away things that I saw friends actually save and clean, and they still have their you know grandmother's gorgeous antique rug or art or you know something that's memorable and important to them, a piece of furniture. And they had it cleaned and and redone, and you can do that. And I think another myth that goes with that is people saying, well, I'm going to throw everything away because I'm going to have the money from my insurance company to replace it all. Mm -hmm. And that's the second myth, is that they really won't have that money. And it's important to save and clean everything you can. I mean, we live in probably the most over-sanitized country in the world. We have every cleaning product imaginable to man. And so, you know, this, that, again, like I said, that myth of I'm going to have enough money is, is not so. The cost of rebuilding, the cost of living, paying rent maybe somewhere else, and a mortgage on a flooded home and reclothing your family and putting food on the table, all of that... That money goes so fast. And at the end of the day, when you when you're moving in, you're gonna realize maybe, you know, I don't have the money left to go buy a new table or a new beds for my kids or whatever. Anything with cloth, mattresses, cloth furniture, sofas, that does have to go because, you know, it's soggy, it's what it's only gonna get molded. Mm-hmm. But the other things really, really can be clean and that that's my first um Tip and the main tip of advice is that. And um, also I, I would tell people to be very careful of contractors. Contractor fraud was a huge, huge problem in New Orleans. And I'm sure people, they're packing their bags and heading to the East Coast now, these fraudulent, fraudulent contractors. Um, also, I think, you know, people are very strong in America and we're proud. And sometimes, many people will say, I don't need the help. I can do all this myself. Mm-hmm. If My advice is if volunteers want to come in and help you, you know, let them. Two things that we have really learned in New Orleans is volunteers bring two things to us. They bring us hope that we've kind of lost quickly. We don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. We're kind of in a despair, shocked mode, um, mental state. And they bring you that hope, and they they can really pick you up, and they bring you the energy that you're also depleted of really quickly in an event like this. So, you know, I, I can remember when I would be so tired and just and the minute the volunteers hit my door step, they were just energized, enthusiastic, ready to help me, and, and, and it made me get myself up. It really, I set off of their energy. So that's that's another
0: tick. Well, Connie, your organization is online at st. Paul I do thank you very much for your time.
5: All right. Thank you for having me. And um, hey, if you know of anyone who needs us, please uh, please send them our way.
0: Connie Udo is the director of St. Paul's Homecoming Center in New Orleans. They're online at st. Paul's homecomingcenter.org. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Bodarkey. As New York City rebuilds following the devastation of Superstorm Sandy... Council Speaker Christine Quinn says the city needs to rebuild smarter. For Quinn, that means accelerating studies to determine the best way to protect communities from future flooding. Malcolm Bowman is a professor at the Marine Sciences Research Center at Stony Brook University and an advocate of storm surge protection barriers. He joins us now on the phone. Malcolm, thanks for taking the time. You're welcome. Malcolm, as the city rebuilds after Superstorm Sandy, what do you think the city needs to be thinking about to protect itself from future storms?
4: The current policy of New York City, and I support this, is called resilience. Resilience means the city is currently analyzing the weak points where the flooding occurs, where the damage occurs or has occurred, and strengthening those situations. It could be a subway entrance. It could be a tunnel entrance. It could be a train station. Uh, It could be a water treatment plant or a power station. So it's it's kind of shoring up, strengthening the vulnerable points. It's called resilience. It's very necessary. It's ongoing. But in a sense, it's a short-term solution because this problem of catastrophic flooding is not going to go away. If anything, it's going to get worse. And so I've been promoting for a good number of years now, maybe eight, nine years, the concept of regional protection. It does not replace the resilience approach. You know, we all keep our cars and our houses in the best repair week we can. If a storm knocks off a branch of a tree and knocks the guttering off our house, well, we fix it and we strengthen it. However, if the following week there's a huge storm and the, the old oak tree comes down and flattens the house, then fixing the guttering doesn't help that much. So the regional approach is the concept of uh, storm surge barriers, natural elevation of sand dunes, levees, tidal gates, shipping gates, a comprehensive system that would protect all of New York City, some of northern New Jersey, and some of uh, the south shore of Long Island, just depending on how it was configured. I look to Europe for guidance uh, in our research and our studies here at Stony Brook University. And we can learn a lot from the British. They have what they call the Thames River Barrier, which protects the city of London from surges, from North Sea storms. And across the English Channel, the Netherlands have a complex system of protections called the, the Delta Plan. Half of the Netherlands, also known as Holland, is below sea level for them, It's a question of national survival, of national security. They don't mess around. But the one I like best and I think is the most relevant to New York is St. Petersburg, Russia. Now, St. Petersburg, known as the Venice of the North, is built on the river delta of the River Neva. And it historically has flooded often and seriously. And the Soviets got very tired of this. So they decided to build a... 35-mile elevated highway. It's like a beltway. It's like a Washington beltway around the city of St. Petersburg at the eastern end of the Baltic Sea. Uh, it's chronically threatened by storm surges. This was almost finished, and then the Soviet Union collapsed. But it's been completed now by Russia, the Russian Federation with European Union money, and one of my colleagues at a, uh, at a, a British uh, engineering firm called Halcro has been leading the completion of this. It would be very similar. It's like a ring road. It's a six-lane six highway, a beltway around the city of St. Petersburg, but it extends out into the harbor, and then there are sort of large gates that allow the shipping in and out, and they're open most of the time, and during storm surges, they may be closed for a few hours to keep the surge from the city. I think we could learn a lot from that. It's a smaller city, of course, but it has many similarities.
0: How much money do you think it would cost New York City to build these kinds of barriers?
4: I can only give numbers off the top of my head. In fact, uh, New York City, uh, the Office of Sustainability and Long-Term Planning, has contracted with one of my Dutch colleagues to do a more sophisticated analysis. But off the top of my head, we would need two barriers. The first one would stretch from Sandy Hook, New Jersey, uh, across to Far Rockaway, Breezy Point. And then that would be like an elevated highway. It could be a light rail system to Kennedy Airport. It would be, it would be hollow underneath, more like a bridge, uh, where the t- normal tidal flow in and out would be unimpeded. But there would be vertical gates or panels, a bit like a guillotine, if you like. They would come down under the road and just block the flow during a surge. And then right in the middle, in the Ambrose shipping channel, there would need to be very large swinging gates. They're like saloon door gates, wide enough to get big ships through. They would normally be open as well. But during a surge, and it's only a few hours they need to be closed during high tide, when the surge is most dangerous, they would snap shut and it would block off the, the surge from the ocean. And then that would con- have to be continued along far rock away uh, by elevating the sand dunes. And the downside, or well, one downside, is that it would block the view of those people who live in those areas, and depending how far east these these nourished sand dunes would go, it could easily protect Kennedy Airport, and if the residents wanted it, it could continue eastward to even Long Beach. And then there would have to be a second barrier system across the Upper East River, much smaller, maybe less than a mile wide, close to the Throg's Neck or the Whitestone Bridges. So the cost of that of that Upper East River, that would stop the surges from from Long Island Sound from coming through and squirting through the East River into the harbour. So the harbour gets it from both the ocean under the Verrazano bridge and from long island sound so it gets a double whammy so the upper east river may cost five or six billion and a very rough estimate for the what i call the outer harbor gateway uh, could be 16 billion but if it's a multi-purpose structure like i just explained with a highway and a, a light rail or train connection a bypass to new york city from northern new jersey it could be a toll road which would help pay the cost, which could be of the order of 16 to $20 billion. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you think that the federal government would help cover this cost as they did to improve the levee system in New Orleans after Katrina?
4: I think the federal government has to be brought in. So the next logical step is that the city requests Congress to instruct the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to do... A comprehensive feasibility study the pros and cons of the regional approach as I call it versus the local resilience approach or well, not even versus in addition to and so that would take possibly five or six years that could cost I've heard numbers not my numbers you know up to 20 million dollars for a sophisticated study which would include the oceanography the weather changes in the climate, the tides, the river flows, the sediments, the sands, the fisheries, the environment, the engineering aspects, the what we call social justice aspects. That is, you know, no matter how you protect a system, some people are going to be left outside and some will be inside. So that's a very tough one. Uh, legal, political, we have three states involved, multiple counties. We have the city of New York. Uh, So this is not something that's going to be done in short order, but it is the responsibility of the Army Corps of Engineers to maintain safe, navigable waters in the United States. So that's why they have been deeply involved in rebuilding the protection around New Orleans uh, after Katrina, and they would have to be involved. There's no way the city could uh, manage this alone or even the state.
0: Malcolm, is your research online, if people want to check out what you do, Yes.
4: You can go to what we call our STORMY website. Do you want me to give it to you? Sure. It's http colon double slash stormy, S-T-O-R-M-Y, dot M-S-R-C. That's short for Marine Sciences Research Center, dot SUNYSB, State University, New York, Stony Brook, dot E-D-U, You'll see there, um, there's a special section on Sandy. We've been collecting all the, all the articles that have been coming out from every media outlet. And also our surge prediction system, you'll see that for various locations. You'll have fun there.
0: All right, Malcolm, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Malcolm Bowman is a professor at the Marine Sciences Research Center at Stony Brook University. Finally today, flooded art galleries in New York City are working to get back on their feet after Superstorm Sandy. Galleries in Manhattan's Chelsea neighborhood were hit especially hard. The Art Dealers Association of America has set up a relief fund to help galleries bounce back. Linda Blumberg is the association's executive director. Linda, good morning to you.
3: Pleasure to be here with you.
0: First of all, Linda, how were art galleries here in New York City impacted by Superstorm Sandy?
3: Well, very devastatingly, I must say, Um, particularly in the Chelsea area where there's such a concentration of galleries, um, there were great uh, surges of water that came in not only um, flooding, but also with great power. So they knocked out windows and they tossed furniture around. I mean, it was quite intense and very severe.
0: Are you aware of any galleries that actually lost artwork?
3: Oh, yes. Uh, I would say, you know, at least, um, you know, 85, 90 percent of them did. If not on their immediate gallery floor, then in the basement where so much of the art was stored.
0: What's it going to take for these art galleries to get back on their feet?
3: Well, as you might know, we've begun an emergency relief fund um, in which our interest was trying to get help to these folks as soon as possible, as long as they could not clear out their gallery spaces and as long as there was water in the gallery the damage just increased daily um, because of mold and other problems. So um, at ADAA we put together funds from our endowment and quickly organized a relief fund and the mechanics of it and were able to hand out checks on Friday um, actually this last Friday to some and of course this effort will continue.
0: You know Linda these art galleries really for a lot of people are their only exposure to fine works of art, right?
3: Well, we often say they act as kind of free museums and they provide just this extraordinary opportunity to look at new art and um, contemporary art, but also art from other periods. It's quite amazing the education one can get just by going to the gallery.
0: How can people go about contributing to the fund?
3: Going to our website, you will see the variety of ways that you can contribute. So it's www.artdealers.org, and you go to the website, and there are ways that you can contribute through PayPal or directly into the relief fund um, or by sending us a check.
0: Linda, thanks so much for your time.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Linda Blumberg is the executive director of the Art Dealers Association of America. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Baldaki. My thanks to senior producer Morleen Chin and producer Julie Clark. Have a great weekend.